There is a woman who sometimes frustrates me in conversation. She is not here today. I understand that she is out of town with her grandchildren, so I feel the opportunity to speak freely. <laughs> the problem is this. I have a tendency to be somewhat linear in my thinking. And sometimes we will be involved in a conversation, and just like that, she goes in a different direction. And I'm standing there with whiplash of the brain thinking, what just happened? When I complain to her about that, she explains it by saying, well, I am able to consider more than one subject at a time. Maybe that's the way it is. I'm not sure, but it's very frustrating for me. The Apostle Paul also seemed to have that unique ability. He could be talking about one subject, and just like that, he would begin with a different subject. For instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he speaks about the resurrection, and it is a wonderful passage of Scripture as he is talking about the resurrection of Jesus. But then very quickly and abruptly in chapter 16, he turns to the collection, and he does so without any transition. He just simply says, after leaving the subject of the resurrection, now concerning the collection. I mean, there, there's, not any, there's not any transition. It's, he's talking about the resurrection, and then now concerning the collection. How was he able to do that? How are you able to go so abruptly from a discussion of the resurrection to the collection? Well, it was because the Apostle Paul understood that both are foundational to Christianity. For instance, without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Now that, in essence, is the gospel, that Jesus Christ died on the cross paying for our sins and that He rose from the grave. And Paul says because of that, because of His resurrection, then we have hope of eternal life. And he continues, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. So he understood that the resurrection was fundamental to our faith, but that the collection was also important to our faith. That's the reason, I think, that he followed chapter 15 on the resurrection, chapter 16 with the collection, because they both are important. Jesus believed that it was important. You might not be aware of this, but Jesus told 38 parables. Sixteen of them deals with the stewardship of one's possessions. So both the resurrection and the collection then are important and foundational to our belief as Christians and is important to us. Now, it's already been mentioned, the testimony has already been given that we are involved in fulfilling the vision. I want to speak to you on that subject today because of this. Next Sunday, after the service, our leadership, our deacons, our Sunday school teachers, 
All those in positions of leadership are going to get together and make their pledges. They are going to give their pledges next week. Now, the week following that, then the entire church family will have the opportunity to make their pledges. So, I want to give you some things to think about as you prepare for that. Take your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We'll begin in verse number 1. Now, in chapter 15, Paul has been speaking about the resurrection. And then in chapter 16, verse 1, now concerning the collection for the saints. As I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper, that no collections be made when I come. And when I arrive, whomever you may approve, I shall send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. There are some questions that I want to share with you today, and I want you to think about them in the next few days. As we, as we move to our time of commitment, I want you to think about these questions. First of all, what should you, or what should we, or why should we pledge? Now, I think that is a worthy and a sensible question for your consideration. I mean, we all know about the economy. We all know about the demands that are on us. All of those things. So the question then is, why should we pledge concerning this? Paul gives us two reasons. First of all, he says that we should to benefit others. In verse number one, now concerning the collection for the saints. And here, he is speaking about the saints who are in Jerusalem, the believers who are in Jerusalem. He is taking up an offering for them because they are going through a time of suffering. There was tremendous poverty within the church in Jerusalem at that time. Paige Patterson wrote, It has been argued by some that the saints in Jerusalem were suffering as a result of their early experiment in community of goods. According to many, the program had quickly exhausted the resources of the church in Jerusalem and left them floundering and without adequate compensatory potentials. However... It is equally possible that by the time this offering was being gathered, the church in Jerusalem had been clearly identified as an offending sect, excluded from the concerns of the Judean community. As a result, hard times may have descended, such as loss of employment and even confiscation of goods and property. So, why are they going through this time of suffering and poverty within the church in Jerusalem? And according to Dr. Patterson, there are two possibilities there. One is that when they pooled all of their resources, it didn't work out too good. That's a possibility. He said, but it also could be that they were being persecuted because they were not mainstream. That's a possibility. We don't know. We know that it was a time of poverty in the church. We really don't know why. But I know that there are some spiritual issues involved as well. You recall when the Lord established the church in Jerusalem, that the church flourished. The Bible says that the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. So thousands of people were coming into the church. They were coming to Christ, coming into the church. But now that after a while, the church got to be a large organization, and the people stopped 
reaching out. They became content with meeting their own needs and so forth. And folks, here is the thing that we always have to be reminded of. When the church stops reaching out, the church dies. It's always been true. When the church stops stops existing for those outside the church and is only concerned about our needs, then the church begins to die. When I look at the church and study about the church in Jerusalem, it had flourished, but there came a time when they no longer were reaching out, and then they began to die. As a matter of fact, Paul Powell said, they began as risk-takers, they became caretakers and ended up with the undertaker. So, the church in Jerusalem then is going through a difficult time. And Paul, nevertheless, whatever the reason, Paul says to the church in Corinth, I want you to help minister to them. So why should they give? To benefit others. Why should we? You have been hearing about this for some time. And... And uh, why should you pledge to benefit others? Well, we're trying to pay off our debt, but how is that going to benefit others, to be honest? How is, we pay off our debt, how does it benefit others? Well, it should enable us to give more to missions. It should enable us to give more through the cooperative program, which is our instrument of financing missions and thousands of missionaries around the world. It should help us with that. It should also enable us to do more as far as mission projects is concerned. And, and you've already heard about the, the Iwanas and you know about the youth and so forth and, and some of the things that they have done. It should allow us to do more of that. Another thing that has been on my heart, and I've shared with you before, and I really want to do, there are a number of our people every year who give a week or two weeks of their time for mission uh, ministries, and so they go other places to do missions, some within the United States, some internationally. I really want us to get to the place where we are supplementing those eventually up to paying for half of the cost. So it will enable us to do that to help other people. Not only that, but it will increase our ministries to others. Did you know that within our budget, only 10% of it goes to programs? Did you know that? Only 10% of our budget actually goes to programs. So if we then are able to pay off our debt, that will enable us to double what we do for programs. So he, why should we do it? Well, to benefit others. And we need to always be looking beyond ourselves. We should always be looking beyond the walls of the church. But then as we do, here's the thing, as we do, we are benefited. Now look at verse number 3. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I shall send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. The word gift that is used there carries with it the idea of grace. Now here's what Paul is saying. As you give to the needs of those in Jerusalem, you receive God's grace. As I give, I receive from God. Sort of like a boomerang. I mean, you throw it out and it comes back because you can never outgive God. As you give a gift, the Bible says that God's grace then is extended to you. So, why should we do it? It's a good question. Why should you do it? 
to benefit others, and in doing so, we benefit ourselves. Second question is, how should you pledge? And Paul tells us here that it should be a systematic pledge in verse number 2, on the first day of every week. Now, that is doing it systematically. On the first day of every week, do it systematically. The program that we are doing is a three-year program, and uh, it is a systematic program that we do this for a period of three years. Systematically, we give. Why is that important? Well, because when we give systematically, then our giving is not based on emotion. And when our giving or anything else is based on emotion, we only do it when we feel like it, right? If it's based on emotion, how would it be in your home if mom only cooked when she felt like it? Most of us would eat out a lot more often, wouldn't we? How would it be at your place of work if the employees only worked when they felt like it? How would it be if your employer only paid when they felt like it? And yet, there are many Christians who believe that I am only to give when I feel like it. There was a church I heard about. There was a mechanic who belonged to the church, and he believed that, that you only give... When you feel, and he and the pastor had a number of conversations concerning that, and the pastor was telling what the Word of God said and so forth, but he never bought into it. He said, no, I don't agree with you. He said, because if you give and don't feel like it, he said, I believe that your motive is wrong, and therefore it's not blessed of God. He said, so I, only, I believe that you should give only when you feel like it. Well, as time went by, the pastor's car had some problems, and so he took it into the mechanic to be fixed. And after the, uh, the, the repairs had been made, then uh, the mechanic gave the pastor a bill, and he reached in his pocket and handed him $10. And he said, what is that? He said, well, that's payment for the work. He said, well, it's, it's, it's much more than that. He said, yep, that's all I feel like giving. So the reason it is important to do what we do systematically is because it removes the emotion, and if it is based on emotion, then we only do what we feel like doing. Secondly, it is not based on approval when we do it systematically. Now, we can fall into the, into the trap of thinking that I only give to what I approve. For instance, there are some who would say, now you look at the plans that we are, the things that we are going to uh, refurbish and so forth, and say there's a children's playground. We're going to redo the children's playground. I don't have any kids at home. My kids are grown and gone, and why should I give? I'm not going to give to that because I don't have the need for it, so I'm not going to approve. Or someone looks at the plans. Now, our, our property committee has done a study that lasted for a couple of years, and they went through all of our buildings to say these are the needs that are there. We said, well, I, you know, I don't think that we ought to do that. Now, you know, I mean, I, I understand this over here, this project right here. I don't think we ought to do it. We don't really need to do that. It's good enough. Let me tell you what I believe about that. I, I believe that everything belongs to God. I believe that this building belongs to God. We are simply stewards. And I think we're not good stewards if we don't take care of that that God has entrusted to us. Same way with what I have, my house, my car. Those, I see those things as belonging to God, and I'm simply a steward of them. And so I have an obligation to take good care of them because that's what stewards do. 
So when we give systematically then, it removes the idea that I have to approve what is being done. And then there's some who say, well, you know, I don't like the, I, I don't like the staff member. I'm not going to give. I, I don't like that. I don't like Steve. Don't like the music. I love the preaching. The preaching has always been a blessing to me. But Steve, I hear that all the time, Steve. So it's important that we do it systematically in order to avoid those kinds of things. And then he says that it is to be a personal pledge there in verse number 2. On the first day of every week, let each one of you. You see, pledging has nothing to do with what we have. There are some people who think, well... You know, because I have so much money, I, 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 I'm not, not going to do that. i got a lot of money, and I'm not going to do that. I'll give a little something, but I'm not going to do much. Zacchaeus had a lot of money, apparently, but he gave. And Barnabas apparently had quite a bit of money, and he sold some property to be able to give to the needs at that time. But then there are other people who say, well, you know, I'm too poor. I don't have any money, so I'm not supposed to give. But the widow had two mites, which is about a quarter of a penny, and she gave as well. So it's personal. When, when you're giving, it's personal. And then something else is that it is to be proportional. You'll notice in verse number 2, he says, as he may prosper. Now, we do not prosper the same. Prosperity varies. Some of you have prospered. Some of you perhaps have not. And so we cannot give equal amounts, but we can sacrifice equally, or we can give equally as far as the value of the gift is concerned. For instance, David wanted to make a, an offering to the Lord, and so he came to the guy who owned the threshing floor, and he said, I want to buy the threshing floor so that I can make a, an offering to God. And the man said, you are the king, you don't need to buy it, I'll just give it to you. And David says, no. He said, I'll not give God something that costs me nothing. He said, I want it to cost me something. When I, when I give something to God, I want it to be something that costs me. And the same thing is true with Mary. When she gave the bottle of perfume, that was worth a working man's salary for a year. So it cost her something to give. When the Macedonians gave, it cost them something. They were very poor, and the Bible says that they gave more than they were able to give. We are to give proportionally, not the same amount. Uh, some of you uh, would, if you gave $1,000, it would be a sacrifice. There are some of you, if you gave $100,000, it would not be a sacrifice. And so it's proportional as God has prospered you. Then it's to be joyful. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 9 7, God loves a cheerful giver. You've heard that, haven't you? I know you have. If you've been in a Baptist church any time, you've heard that. God loves a cheerful giver. Yeah, and you've probably seen the signs up in some churches, God loves a cheerful giver, but we accept from a grouch. Well, <laughs> I used to think that, but I, I, I honestly don't anymore. And the reason that I don't is because I don't think God, I, I don't think God needs... Um, I don't think he needs our money. I think we need to give it. That's really what I think. So uh, I don't know if it's scriptural or not. You can ask Jerry. Jerry will tell you. My feeling is if you, if, if you give and God keep it. Because I don't think that's what it's... See, I don't think that you ought to be coerced to give. Now, there was a circus that came to this small town. They had a strong man in the circus. And, and uh, so he was doing his... Um, 
little presentation and the people gathered around and the strong man took an orange in his hand and he squeezed it and squeezed it and squeezed it and all the juice came out. Till I mean, it was just nothing but pulp left. And he said, if anyone can get another drop of juice out of this orange, I'll give him a hundred dollars. Well, after a while, there was a little skinny guy got up and he walked up there. He said, I think I can. He handed him the orange, and he squeezed and squeezed and squeezed, and after a while, one more drop came out. He said, how in the world did you do that? He said, I'm treasurer at the Baptist church. So (laughs) I, I don't think that we should try to coerce people into giving. But I do want to encourage you. And I really believe this. Uh, See, and and maybe I have a different advantage than you. Giving has never been an issue for me. And the reason is because of my dad. My dad taught me when I was a little boy that everything I had uh, belonged to God. And I remember him telling me one time, Curtis, when I was just a little boy. It's funny how those things stick in your mind. But I remember as being a little boy, my daddy said to me, Son, it is better to have 90% with God's blessings than to have 100% without His blessings. So it's never been a problem for me. But I really want you, and many of you have, I really want you to understand what it means to trust the Lord in this area because you can see God's provision in a tangible way. As we trust the Lord, then we put the Lord in a position of meeting our needs. And so I, I want you to experience that. It's to be joyful. I don't want to coerce you into it. I don't want you to come and feel badly about it. I I want you to respond to God. I I, I don't want to put you on a guilt trip. None of those things. I just want you to respond to God. Something else is that it's testimonial because the word collection that is used there literally means to say something. Isn't that interesting? That the word collection means to say something. And see, the collection says something. Our giving says something. First of all, it speaks of our sincerity. We can say that we love the church and we support the church and all of these kinds of things, but when we give, then that speaks about our sincerity. It it, it says something our giving does, speaks of sincerity, speaks of our heart. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. You want to know where your heart is? You want to know what you love? Yes or no? I'm going to tell you a way to know what you love. Go back and look at the checkbook and see where you put your money. See where your money goes. Because that will tell you what you love. So he says that it speaks of the heart. It speaks of maturity. When we are immature, we only want to get. When we are mature, we want to give. When Hank, my oldest grandson, was born... He got everything. I mean, we, whatever, he, whatever Hank wanted, Hank got. We got. And then Hughes came along, and Glenn came along, and Pruitt came along, and Janie came along, and Hank had to learn to share. But that's a part of maturity. Paul says that we are to pledge systematically, personally, proportionally, joyfully, and it is a testimony. So how should we do it? Thirdly, what should you pledge? You see, this is not just about money. And I think as I read this passage of Scripture, there are two primary motivations that we give. First of all, God's blessings. Would you agree with me that God has blessed you? I know He has me. He has blessed me materially. Oh, 
don't tell anybody this, but I have a lot more than I ever thought I would. Don't you? He's blessed me materially. He has blessed me spiritually. In fact, Simon Peter said, we were nobodies, and now we are the children of God. I was praying before I came in here a while ago, and I said, Lord, thank you, because I was a nobody. And now I am a child of God, a child of Almighty God. So the Lord then has blessed me, and so there's God's blessings, and then there's God's example, because God gave. What then should determine your giving? Well, what God has done. We give because God does. You know, I think that it's a part, if you have the heart of God, this is, this is something you want in your own heart because that is our Father. Our Father is a giving God. Secondly, because of what others have done, I was thinking about this yesterday, and boy, I am a debtor. I am saved today because someone told me about Jesus. So I'm a debtor for salvation. I have been ministered to by someone who was willing to minister. In fact, I, I went to college because someone gave a scholarship, the Pritchard Scholarship Fund. We enjoy the buildings that we have here and the amenities that we have at First Baptist Church, most of them, because someone gave and in some instances, it was 200 years ago, almost when they began, began giving. So why should I do it? Because God does. Because others have. So you have to decide what you're going to do. Why should you do it? For your thinking and your prayer time. Why should you do it? To benefit others and to benefit yourself. Because as you benefit others, it is a gift that comes back in God's grace. Secondly, how should you do it? Generously and with faith. Thirdly, what should you do? Well, that should be determined by God's example. He gave His Son others' obedience because we are benefited by the obedience of others and now our responsibility. So as I look at this passage of Scripture, those who have experienced the resurrection of chapter 15 should be involved in the collection of chapter 16. But do you know where it always starts? By giving yourself. Folks, God does not need your money, nor does He need my money. What He wants is you. And as He has us, then He'll begin working in our lives to tell us what He wants us to do. Fathers, we come to a time of invitation today. We thank You so much for Your great love and mercy and grace. And Lord, we thank you that you have put us in a position in a country and in a church where we are able to give more than we ever dreamed. Lord, I just pray that you'll speak to our hearts. But Father, I pray that first of all, these will consider giving themselves totally to you. For those who have never been saved, I pray that they might be saved. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just a moment, we're going to stand, sing a hymn of invitation. If you're here without Christ, let me encourage you to come. Trust Him today. If you're looking for a church home, our doors are open to you. We'd love to have you. Stand with me, please, as we stand. The choir sings, you come, I'll greet you as you do.